Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I just want to say a personal note of how excited I am about this panel. I had seen some work that um, had been put together in L.A. uh, with a group of designers taking uh, some urban challenges in L.A. and and, uh, addressing those in a very imaginative way. And I tracked down the organizers and sent them an email late at night, and I said, would you possibly consider doing this with us in San Diego? And they'd never, they'd never heard of CEOs for Cities, but they were so gracious to agree not only to come and join us, but to find three of their three great designers around the country to join them and address challenges in cities. So um, I, I'm just I'm thrilled that you were uh, about your responsiveness, and thank thanks to all the panelists for being with us today. So at that, Alyssa, I'm going to turn it to you. My name is Alyssa Walker. I'm a, a writer. I write about design, um, architecture, urban issues, a lot of the stuff that you guys are talking about. And this is so exciting because we feel like we sometimes write and talk about design and people don't understand it. And you guys totally get it. And it was so inspiring to be sitting in here and, and hearing your conversations because it means that I'm doing my job and somehow it's working. So thank you so much. And then this is Casey. I'll let him introduce himself. I'm Casey Kaplow, um, the creative director and one of the founders for Good. And I think for various reasons, Good is sort of how we ended up here. Alyssa's done a bunch of wonderful writing and design for us. Um, Just to introduce us, we are, this is sort of a slide that quickly says who we are. We're a magazine, website, videos, events for people who give a damn. Uh, We started our magazine about two and a half years ago. And um, really with this idea that there was something going on in the world that people sort of cared more. They gave a damn. They wanted to engage with the world around them in sort of new and creative ways. And um, we sort of wanted to, to be there to celebrate that, to encourage that, to give people you know, some direction in that. And um, it's sort of been an evolving effort since then. So I guess to go to the next uh, slide. Um, this is also actually Scott, who's here, who's designed the magazine, um, helped put this together from a media kit. Like, Good is also a whole bunch of different things because really to that point, it's an idea and it's this constant exploration of what good is. And um, that's sort of what we're always doing and we hope to you know, involve as many people as possible. And I think for us, design has always been a big part of what we do and a big sort of means through which we, we see the world. Um, and uh, I think you know, cities and urbanism is definitely like a focus, uh, you know, one of our focuses. So. Um, so we, we often get asked, since we're you know, associated with good, well, what's good design? And we actually did a, a design issue that had an AK-47 on the front of it to um, kind of pr- provo- provoke, I think, some interesting discussions about what actually means good design. We have some of those issues here that we'll pass out at lunch to give to you. But I, I think that another really interesting question about what good design is, and there's been a huge change in the last year. Most of you guys have heard of organizations like Architecture for Humanity, um, things like the um, um, advancing uh, things like what Brad Pitt did in New Orleans, the Make It Right um, Foundation, where they built houses for people uh, victims of Hurricane Katrina. But there's also a very interesting thing that you might not know about called the Designers Accord, which is actually founded by one of our panelists, Valerie Casey. And um, this is a kind of voluntary pledge for designers all over the world to just do more meaningful work. 
And so um, this actually number, it's, it, it was 100,000 firms. It's actually more like 150,000 firms now, right? Or maybe, yeah. maybe even more, yeah, more than that. So um, all these designers are kind of agreeing that they're going to do stuff that matters and through all their different organizations. So this is, this is definitely happening, and designers are, are on your side. And you probably are all familiar with something like this, which is the um, design for the other 90%. You guys know, all know what this is. This, it was an exhibition that was at the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum in New York, and all about designing, you know, designers today design for 10% of the population, the richest percent of the population. And now they are, there's a movement to design things for third world countries, uh, low-income residents, just people who need design more. And this is one of the most famous kind of trademark uh, designs that was featured in this exhibition. It's a water pump that uh, farmers can use to bring up water uh, that's safe to drink or to water their crops from, you know, in, in ways that they would not have been able to do it with their own technology um, and devices around them. So we know this is happening, but at the same time, we really want you to think of design as broader than just designing a logo or designing a building. And I think that also fits in a lot with goods philosophy. Yeah, I think one of the, one of the things when we did the design issue, it was, I think, came at a moment where we, we wanted to sort of help take back and, and change the conversation about design. And this was happening. But going from a thing where you thought of design as about aesthetics and about making products or designing a logo, and you know, it, it really is about problem solving. And that is the sort of really special skill and imaginative sort of ability of designers is this ability to sort of try to create some certain impact in the world, um, be it through a logo, but also, you know, anything else. And I think um, design as a, as a sort of community has really been, been changing and embracing that um, very thoroughly over the last few years. And, um, and that's sort of this moment right now. And I think 2008, Alyssa did a recap for us, really sort of that, that sort of hit um, a high note. And I think people really felt like design is this, this way to solve problems and a very new, sort of timely um, way to look at the world and, and fix the problems around us. Which is good because we have problems. And this was like the worst day in LA with the fire, our, our, our wildfire season now that we have annually. But um, this was just one of those days that I looked out my window in Hollywood and I was like, man, this, I live in a really great city, but this sucks. And I was just looking at it. It was like hard to breathe, and there's this horrible construction going on that's been going on forever. There's traffic. And so I think that um, I think we all have similar problems in our cities. We've talked a lot about the problems. But I was, I was also really concerned because recently I had heard something about a tent city outside of Sacramento. Did anybody else hear about that on the news, right? So I was like, this is a really good way to illustrate a problem. Like, the third world problems are coming to us, number one. And number two, well, how do you even begin to solve something like that? And I looked it up online, and I actually found this tent city in Ontario, California, two years ago. And I just can't even believe that this is something I didn't know anything about this, and I'm not sure if any of you guys were aware of this, but this has been happening for a long time, and I think we forget about problems, we sweep them, you know, sweep them under the rug, and we, we don't really think about how we could solve them. But also, how do you start to solve this problem? Do you just build these people houses? It's more complex than that, right? It can't just be. So there's a really amazing book, and Teddy Cruz is actually featured prominently in this book, one of the next panelists, uh, one of the next speakers. And this is a really great new book that shows solutions where architects and designers and all different kinds of, from all different backgrounds, are 
using their skills in different ways that don't just focus on what they were taught, you know, how to design a house. They're really using their skills in a completely different way that can change, um, you know, cities and communities and, and people's lives. This, and we'll, we'll have a toolkit online for you guys to download with all this information so you can uh, buy this book and, and uh, read all about these great projects. And one of the coolest projects, is there anyone here from Atlanta? Okay, so I used to live in Atlanta, and I live very close to this. And this is a guy named Ryan Gravel. And um, this is, <laughs> thank you for laughing. And, um, <laughs> and this is probably one of the coolest. I used to live by one of these abandoned railways in Atlanta. They have tons of them, as many cities do. And this was a, he was a grad student at uh, Georgia Tech. Didn't, wasn't like a transportation specialist. Wasn't anyone that, you know, really understood, you know, what to do with these abandoned railways. But he looked at all the ones in the area and decided that they would make a great loop for an awesome new transit system that would also be mixed-use developments, um, a sustainable, like, bikeway, all these. I'm sure you know more about this than me, but it's, it was an amazing proposal. And it's happening. Some, the right person talked to him at the right time and got this to, be, to, start, to you know, be an actual proposal that was put in front of the city. And this is like a $1 billion project that, three, three billion? Oh, so it's gigantic. Um, that's actually happening. So there's like a rendering of you know, one of the new areas. And we also have someone else on our side. Um, I don't know if you guys know that he said he wanted to be an architect uh, when he was growing up. But um, there, there was a comment when the person was on the phone today just about how he's a real grassroots problem solver, and he came from a community and, and dealt with problems from the bottom up. And I think that makes Barack Obama a design thinker. I do believe that he is. He's definitely on our side. Look at him. He's, like, solving problems, like, right there. He's <laughs> drawing chalk lines. <laughs> So the other people you have on your side are all these um, design organizations. And you got, are you guys familiar with some of these, maybe all of these? So these are all people in your cities who um, belong to these organizations, all different backgrounds. And they've, formed, they've come together to propose a U.S. national design policy initiative. And this is a document and a movement that they they're ta have taken to D.C., to try to give design a greater voice, showing its power to help communities, showing its ability to help you know, economic competitiveness right now, which is what we need a lot, more than anything, probably right now. So I think I'm going to hand this part over to Casey again. Sure. So yeah, it's just getting back to good design, and broadly speaking, but also as we're looking to cities and solving problems here. And um, you know, one of the things that we want to say is, again, well, the focus here is to point the attention to designers and how do we how do we tap into them. So one point is it's not pro bono work. Um, there is you know and a great tradition of designers um, doing pro bono work to help help out causes to help out nonprofits, but that's not what we sort of see this conversation being about. This is about you know actively engaging the design community to to tap their brains and and create new and exciting solutions to the problems around us. Um, so it is that. It's solving community problems. Um, and again, um, you know, it's local, locally acting, you know, action-oriented things. Um, you know, it's really, there's just, there's so much creativity from, from this community that I, I guess this is, we sort of, we've had an, an amazing um, experience working with and tapping into. And 
I'm sure you guys have on various levels, but we sort of want to encourage more of that. Um, and again, this sort of civic service through design thinking. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but there is this, this phrase of design thinking, which is this sort of, it's almost a methodology of, of how you approach problem solving through design. And um, you know, I, think the, I think our cities, our communities can, can very much be greatly served through that. Um, and really engaging with local government. Um, We'll talk later, but about you know thinking having designers with the city as their client, um, but but really working with the local neighborhoods, with local governments, with city governments, um, and just those local constituencies. Like I think a really really amazing surprising things can happen, um, and, and that's really what it's about is collaboration. Um, it's bringing, you know, meshing the the right problem with the right problem solver and the right. Um, the right tools and and the right money and the right money and um, again you know I can't I'll keep saying it but amazing things can happen um, so do you want to so I mean this is obviously this is WPA stuff from from back in the day um, but you know one of the last times the the country really embarked on a, a grand um, approach to to you know putting people to work and I think from a design perspective like there were amazing posters and there's new movements of like this going on with with designers just taking it up on their own to to promote the cause um, um, so you know today you've got new marks showing up for um, how like the recovery.gov um, and this tiger logo are going to show up on stimulus bill and you know things that just so to create this this sense of transparency that's really important to our new um, way of the world and um, so that we know what's what's been flagged in what area um, and we're sort of you know I don't know if this is totally serious but you know proposing <laughs> like maybe there's like a good design mark that you know pr like solutions that come out of um, you know these kinds of environments like we can note as good design and this is this is sort of identifying this collaborative nature the, the fact that we're trying to solve problems and um, you know make the world better Um, so again, the, I think this now we get into the like I guess really what brought us here, which was we were Alyssa and I were wanting to do an event, a design event in LA, and we had done some events actually with Scott in New York the last year. And um, again, the design community and good are very tight, and we've always had a very good time together. Uh, but when we looked to Los Angeles, we wanted to do something more new and fresh, and we asked like, well, what if we ask the designers that we know to take on the city as their client? You know what would happen, and we create something new through this, um, and so that's what we did, and we brought a bunch of people together to to do that. Um, so, you know, looking to you, you get these people together and ask like, you know, them to look to their neighborhoods, their the, the areas they live in. We're in Los Angeles, as you many of you I'm sure know, it's like the interests in one part of town are wildly different than the interests in another part of town, and so you get um, just a bunch of different brains and a bunch of different local situations to address things very, very specifically. Um, and again, what if we had an event where designers could share their ideas with the community and bring people together and, you know, there's interesting, diverse people in the crowd like this, people who represent different businesses, different constituencies, different, you know, funding sources or interests. And, and that's really where uh, wonderful things can happen when, you know, there's a lot of design events, and we've been a part of them in the past, where it's a bunch of designers showing work to the design community. Wonderful ideas, and everyone's excited and feels inspired seeing great work, but 
often nothing can come of it because no one's there to do anything about it. And I think it's really rooms like this where you get different people, different people yeah. together, and that's where that's where progress can be made and magic ha can happen. Um, and the events with free drinks that might be covered by <laughs> these guys down there. But um, that's an important part of the yeah. formula. So. So this was an event that we did in, in December. Um, we organized it uh, and, and asked people that we thought were great designers to come together. And they, we can just go really fast through. The problems were just, uh, this was one for food cart vendors, which we all have in our cities, and finding the solution was to uh, have them do service for the areas that they were parking their carts in so people at the city would see them as more of a value instead of, you know, clogging up the streets. This was a walk-to-school program that was proposed to cut down on rush hour traffic. And this is actually groups bounded together because of a meeting at this event. This was a proposal for LA strip malls to make them more like art installations and contribute more to the, to the streetscape. Um, this was a, a, an artist who wanted to have more hand-painted signs in the city. He thought that the vinyl signs were horrible and ugly, and so he wanted to go out, and he proved that you could hand-paint a sign that was more beautiful in the time he gave his presentation. <laughs> it was very wonderful. And this is someone who proposed that we all need to uh, work from home and free up the downtown office buildings so people can live in them and live together, live nearby each other, and enjoy the cities more so we don't spend so much time commuting to work. And this was our, one of our favorites. We wanted a, a solution for earthquakes. And so uh, this, this designer decided that we should break apart the state of California during uh, places that already had high tension and high stress and using uh, explosives. And so we would actually uh, divide the city up, you know, divide the state up in, in ways that, you know, natural boundaries. And then he would create new forms of Hollywood entertainment to help us cope with some of these problems that we, of, of this fault splitting apart. <laughs> so very light and also very serious solutions. <laughs> And then we, we were approached by Art Center College of Design, which is in Pasadena, to do this again with their students. And these were really amazing. We brought in um, Kurt Anderson, who's the host of Studio 360. You guys might know him. He kind of opened the evening for us, worked with the students to make sure that their um, ideas were more sound. And we also brought in uh, Krista Klein, who works in the mayor's office, who was able to kind of frame the evening for us and give her feedback. And the students were amazing. This was someone who wanted to bring herds of goats to clear the brush to prevent wildfires, which is actually happening in a lot of places, has been for quite some time. This was an iPhone app that you could uh, aim at, at street signs you didn't know, and it would translate it for you. The student was very frustrated that he didn't know what all these different places were, didn't know what these stores were. Lots of iPhone. Yeah, lots of iPhone apps. iPhone apps can save the world. Amazingly. This was a, a student who was frustrated that in his community every store was a liquor store and didn't sell fresh fruit or any kind of healthy food. And so he proposed a reality show called Council Swap that would be on Fox where uh, the Beverly Hills councilman would switch places with the one in his East L.A. <laughs> we, we actually, it's amazing, right? A great idea. And we actually had a producer contact us afterwards and he's like, I'm pitching this. Let's write a proposal. This is a great idea. 
such a good idea. And then the last, another student had a problem with fame. He was really concerned that LA had a bad reputation because of fame, because of our quest for fame. And he, he you know, made up this map or this uh, figure of how you achieve fame, which I thought was so thoughtful and so interesting. You can see, like, you know, if you, you're heading up, you have a kidney-shaped pool, but as you go back down, you're wrecked to renting, which is, you know, very bad. So, so he, he came up with a website where you can meet the real celebrities of LA and have real experiences, which I thought was really cool. <laughs> yeah, Los Angeles, pretty great. So we asked you guys what your problems were. Yeah, so we, you know, Carol got in touch and sort of, I think we're proposing this a little bit as not only tapping into designers, but also as a framework, like having events like this. Um, you do get the crazy ideas like exploding California off the <laughs> coast and also more serious ones. Um, you can implement like, you know, some street vendor programs and then something in between, like let's pitch a show to Fox. Um, so it's like fun and inspirational and stimulating. And um, so we asked Carol like to reach out to you guys and, and sort of what are, what your problems are. And we got some great responses back from, you know, I think we heard some interesting things from Cincinnati, um, you know, about certain like geographic, um, you know, how to, basically just questions like how do we work with, with the special problems of our city? Um, I think Miami got in touch, Buffalo, and, and we got some really interesting ideas. And when we put this together, we found three, three friends and designers that we, whose work uh, we really like. And, and sort of also showing you guys, we sort of have a graphic designer, communication designer. We have a more product, in, uh, sit, even like systems designer, um, and an architect. And so there's sort of people coming at it from different ways. And we asked them to, we shared with them the problems and said, you know, sort of pull from these themes, but also look to your local community because these are the things that you're going to know best. Um, and so that's what we're going to share with you. Um, and so that's what's going to come up next. And um, we'll, we'll follow up we on this. Yeah, let us know how we can help you, how these guys specifically can help you. Um, or also we can help you do this in your city. And one of the things that we do want to follow up on afterwards um, on the CEOs for Cities website is give you some of the basics, some of the tools for like how to, how to do this in your area um, on your own, or if you do want to tap, to, tap into us to help do it. We're more as long than as you happy have free help. drinks, then we'll That's right. <laughs> um, so, with no further ado, our first speaker is Scott Stoll. Hi. <laughs> uh, so, Casey and Alyssa asked me to just start with a couple slides that talk about what we do at our studio so you know who's talking to you. And then we'll get into sort of the problem that we created and tried to solve. So um, our studio is called Open. It's a very small studio. We do a wide range of work. I'll go very quickly. This is an identity system for the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, videos for Jazz at Lincoln Center. This is a, a study we're doing now with the Alliance for Downtown New York about a neighborhood that's being kind of reconfigured, hopefully. Signage for uh, a museum in New Haven. This is probably the world record holder for the simplest logo that you will ever see. This is a logo we did for a TV network called Planet Green. It is a green dot. Uh, there's uh, our Mayor Bloomberg in front of a piece we did to promote a campaign about Brooklyn Bridge Park, which is being developed uh, in New York right now. And finally, of course, the design of Good Magazine, which these guys have already talked about. A new issue coming out soon. This is it. 
Oh, there's some here. Advanced copies here. And it's full of lots of wonky policy information that everyone here will love. <laughs> um, so we actually focused on two of the challenges that were received. Um, only one of these had someone's name on it, so I was very political and left both names off so as not to offend anyone, but, or to offend both of them, I guess. Um, but this one talked about food trucks, and I won't go through the whole thing, but basically this is a person from New York City talking about the kind of uh, proliferation of different food trucks in New York, and it's become kind of a fad over the last few years, starting with things like... Uh, ice cream trucks, of course, that everybody knows. And now in Manhattan, we have, this is the mud truck, which is the best coffee you can get in town. And this is a dessert truck that has very fancy desserts. And uh, there's even a waffle truck, which is run by some crazy Belgians that serve waffles out of a truck. And this notion of a truck that would bring something to you, not necessarily food, was really fascinating to us. So um, the novelty of it is very exciting. The, all the joy that you get from an ice cream truck as a kid and then the surprise when it's not actually an ice cream truck seemed like a really interesting thing. So starting there, we went to this very interesting challenge, which is about, uh, you know, people call it the third place. You know, people go home, they go to work, and Starbucks in particular likes to call themselves your third place, that other place like your neighborhood bar or your coffee shop or whatever, the other place that you like to go. And this particular challenge was particularly about Starbucks. A lot of them are closing, and it's very expensive, and people don't go there as much, so what will be the third place? But I was really uh, fascinated with the last sentence here. Is there a model for a new public amenity that would serve a similar function as the third place? So that's sort of where we started our thinking. And we started thinking about other precedents for this sort of thing. The bookmobile, which is a thing that a lot of places still do and have done for many years, is kind of a fascinating idea that this would come to town and bring knowledge, or to your neighborhood, bring knowledge and books and so on. But then there are other things, like even just the tradition of guys playing dominoes or cards out on the street in certain neighborhoods. This is in Europe, but it happens all over New York, and there are chess tables in the parks and so on. This becomes a kind of private use of a public space in an ad hoc way. Uh, this is an interesting project that was done a few years ago in Amsterdam. This is, a this is a place called Food Facility. And basically it was a restaurant full of tables and chairs, but no kitchen, and lots of takeout menus. So basically you would go there, it's a completely non-commercial entity where you would go to and order food and have it delivered to this public place. <laughs> and you could actually go and say, oh, I want to get a pizza, I want to get Chinese food. Well, let's go there, we can all eat together and have this communal experience. <laughs> so it was basically an art project, but it was really fascinating to us that you could create this sort of non-commercial thing that was sort of fun and interesting for people to gather at. And finally, this is a project that was actually featured in Good Magazine a couple years ago called Parking Day. And this is an idea where groups basically go and feed the meter of a real parking space, and they turn public parking into a public park by rolling out AstroTurf and putting out chairs. And it is completely legal to do this because it does not say that you have to put a car in a space when you're paying for the parking. So you see people driving around the block saying, oh, I don't want that space. But then, of course, you know, 10 or 20 people can enjoy it rather than the empty car that was just sitting there. So this idea of reusing public space in a different way was really interesting to us. Plus, it costs almost nothing. So we came up with an idea based on the economy as it is these days. You see this photo was taken in New York last week outside my <laughs> office. And it's getting really bad. We can't afford color anymore. And... Um, <laughs> 
so, but as you know, obviously the economy is having troubles and people are out of work and so on. And there was a really interesting article in the Times last weekend where organizations, particularly in New York, are getting flooded with volunteers now because people are out of work and they have the spirit of wanting to help and also the president has encouraged everyone to do this. And so this is a quote. Can you make them stop calling? This is ahead of some nonprofit. Everybody's inspired by Obama, but they also don't have jobs. And so these places are getting overrun. So again, there's this kind of surplus of willing, free labor and time in a way. So we started uh, looking at some other precedents. This is a website called Volunteer Match, which basically is kind of a matchmaker for groups that need help and people that want to help. Um, this is uh, the Park Slope Food Co-op in Brooklyn and New York. There's organizations like this all around the country where people give their time. They work a couple of hours a month, and then they're a member of the club, and they get cheap uh, groceries and so on, cheaper and finally, this is one of my favorite uh, ideas. This is FreeCycle, which is a website and a kind of idea where basically if you have stuff you want to get rid of and you think it might be valuable, you post it on the website. And we've gotten rid of so much stuff this way, computers, supplies, and all different kinds of stuff that people just come by and say, oh, I could use that. I'll take that for free and you don't have to dispose of it. So it's a way to pool resources in a time when uh, things aren't as uh, plentiful as they were. So we started with this, uh, oh, and finally, the simplest give and take is this uh, take a penny, leave a penny that you see at the deli. I always thought this was a beautiful little moment that you just leave your change and somebody takes it, and it's this unspoken agreement among all of us. So we started with the idea of give and take and said, well, what can we give and take that's not money, that's not commercial? You can give your time. You can take time. You can give and take stuff and trade it, and also ideas can be given and taken. So we came up with this idea, the give and take machine. We're back to the ice cream truck. So basically, this is a truck that would drive around, staffed by volunteers. It's called the give and take machine. Here's uh, the rest of the design of it. The front is reversed, of course, for the rearview mirror, like the ambulance. Um, when it gets up behind you, you want to read it. But anyway, so you can give time. It's a place where basically volunteers would know about different organizations and opportunities to help them. So you could go there and sign up. Also, the organizations themselves would post flyers here, like on a website, but in real life, because this is meant to really bring people together physically in the city. So help us out. You can go there and help them out. You can give stuff, stuff you don't want. Drop it off at the truck. If somebody else comes along and wants it, they can take it. If nobody takes it, at the end of the day, the truck brings it off to Salvation Army or wherever it goes. And then, of course, you can give and take ideas. Maybe it becomes a funny kind of soapbox where you can go and talk to people and also, we could have event listings and even a little kind of patio that would happen outside the truck. Again, like the parking day idea, it's a space created for almost nothing where kind of interesting interactions between people can happen. Um, again, the idea is this is totally non-commercial. So, of course, it has to get paid for a little bit. So, of course, there's always donations, you know, tip jar and all that. But then these days, we've found, uh, particularly by working with Good, that there are a lot of organizations and corporations that want to get associated with doing good work and not just underwriting a museum show or something. So we found a few companies well, we have not talked to. We just stole their logos, of course. But <laughs> who have mission statements or kind of advertising campaigns that would support this kind of thing. So Liberty Mutual has a thing called the Responsibility Project, which is about helping people. Um, T-Mobile, cell phones, they, their thing is all about sticking together. And again, 
it, it's not a stretch to think that they might sponsor something like this. And then Cisco Systems talks about the effect of the human network and how we're all connected and all the things we do can help each other. So hopefully something like this will happen one of these days and the giving and the taking uh, can keep going. Thanks. So uh, I'm Valerie Casey, I'm from IDEO, and like Alyssa mentioned, I started something called the Designers Accord, which is basically um, what we call a Kyoto Treaty for Design. Um, started about a year and a half ago, and um, it's grown in epic proportions. Um, we have 150, over 150,000 people involved in it from 100 countries across the world. Um, and we do all sorts of events and, and meetups and things like this, and the whole idea is counterintuitive. It is to take a traditionally quite a competitive industry, the creative industry, and actually get people to work together um, around sustainability, so creating social impact and, and environmental impact. Um, and and we just, you know, it's, it's incredibly inspiring because it helps us to find all of these pockets of people and groups and organizations that are similarly trying to take on, you know, these intractable challenges of our time. So um, that's the, my little bit about, um, about uh, the Designers Accord. But I also work at IDEO, um, which maybe some of you have heard of. Um, we're an international um, innovation firm, design and innovation firm, been around for about 30 years. Um, and known for some really iconic products, um, one of them being the computer mouse, designed the first Mac um, mouse and, and Microsoft, or sorry, PC mouse. Um, and, and over the 30 years, we've really moved from being pure kind of design stylists and mechanical engineers to being um, design thinkers. And that term has come up a lot. And uh, the way I kind of like to describe design thinking is that it's really all about empathy. So if design thinking has kind of um, three parts to it, one is the human <coughs> element, one is the technology element, and one is the business element, it's all about balancing those three elements, but coming in from the human perspective first. So we try to practice a lot of like walking in other people's shoes. And it's actually one of the reasons why we took some of the, um, the design challenges that were described by this group and actually localized them, um, found a similarity to our local environment in San Francisco so that we could actually take on this challenge in a couple of days. Um, so IDEO now, what I do at IDEO is um, I run a, a group, I co-run a group that's a global group that's called Systems at Scale. And we focus on problems, I just come back from DC, challenges that are that have to do with the government and have to do with cities and have to do with the large systems that we are all involved in, in, in all different kinds of ways. And we, what we try to do is find little moments in those systems where we can make slight changes and actually have huge impact. Um, and it, it seems like a timely kind of um, perspective around design, especially in these economic times, because it is about these kind of small changes. Um, so the problem that, the, the challenge that we kind of, we aggregated from the um, wonderful provocations that were sent in was um, really around these infrastructural dividers in our cities that have been kind of these traditionally non-designed spaces. Um, and um, it's such a, it's so funny when a cell phone goes off and the person whose phone it is like panics for a second. <laughs> okay, everybody relax. Um, <laughs> And, and these, these crazy spaces um, that, that are the centers of many of our cities or significant parts of some of our cities that are really undesigned and they really separate communities. So we started to think about how can we actually work with those 
those spaces in a more productive way and actually sort of celebrate separateness and autonomy and identity as a way to kind of rethink community rather than imagining that we're all part of the same community but actually just celebrating the differences. Um, and so what we did was we looked at um, San Francisco's Market Street, and many of you probably have been um, to San Francisco, I'm sure, or at least know about it. And, um, and uh, Market Street is just one of these dead zones, you know. It kind of it spans the entire city, um, and it is, um, it, it, in some portions of it, truly frightening, and other portions, you know, it's like full of people just smoking in front of um, their buildings where they work. And then other places are outrageous um, and interesting and very cultural. But as a whole, it's a really, um, it's kind of, a, it's sort of the dead zone of San Francisco. And there's all sorts of things like this around where it looks like there was a project that someone had started at some point that just got abandoned. Like maybe they forgot where they were on Market Street because it all sort of vaguely looks the same. Um, and, um, and just really a lot of people use this as a thorough, pa as a pass-through um, in, in a kind of a very unfortunate way. So in our typical IDO way, what we did was um, we went out, we spent about three days doing a little bit of work around this, um, and we did a lot of observations and had a lot of phone calls and, um, or sorry, uh, a lot of um, sort of impromptu conversations with people and came up with these four principles um, for new thinking around this. And one of them, the first one is, um, is about the grand gesture. And if typically in urban design, at least the way some of us were trained, um, it's really about this, like this grand or, you know, orchestration of, of great changes. And what we're actually advocating is instead of having the grand gesture, really focusing on the point intervention. So small little transformations that can happen um, that can be rapidly prototyped. That's another quality of design thinking is that it is about rapid prototyping as well. So not being married to all of this entire system, putting it all in place and then saying, okay, now someone go and build it, but actually prototyping it and um, really changing the sort of the cadence of development. The next thing is um, large-scale infrastructure, changing that really to human-centered design. And we saw, we've seen this in lots of different um, urban renewal projects like Times Square Now in New York. Um, they, you know, when Tibor Kalman and Bob Stern designed 42nd Street, um, 42nd Street now, right, um, is the name of the project, they, they actually forced businesses to have, um, to only have a storefront that was 30 feet long. So even Toys R Us, which is a mega store, could only have 30 feet um, of, of sidewalk space because they have, you have to continue the visual interest and really focusing on, you know, from someone who's four foot six to, um, to five foot four. That's where the, the visual interest should be in terms of eye level. Um, changing this notion from a space of passive transition where people are really just trying to get from A to B to actually an articulated journey. So how can you punctuate these, these, um, these large um, undesigned spaces so that they're actually much more interesting? And then thinking about um, connecting those disparate parts um, as communities. And, I, and again, it's not as one community, but as these multiple different sort of um, reference points. Um, and so we, we use a lot of design exercises to kind of get our thinking um, to get ourselves thinking in a new sort of way. And, and this is one of the ones that was, I thought, pretty fun that we did. Um, it, it's, we took programs, so program, you know, anything that's sort of the intention of the space and had these little, um, these little tags. You know, it, the intention of the space is to design something where people can engage or consume or avoid or spectate, make and sell, um, and put those together with different kinds of contexts. So, um, you know, a plaza, a bus island, um, a foyer, a curb, 
taking those and actually starting to put them together. So some of the early sketches were um, on the top left here, um, play and BART entry. BART is our public transportation system. And so one of the designers had designed um, a circular slide that you could actually slide into the, the, uh, the public transport. On the, the top right there, um, spectate and bus island. And so somebody suggested that we could have um, like a spectator tower on top of the bus island where people could actually climb up and just sort of observe the cities, the city's happenings. Um, engage and plaza on the bottom left. This is kind of like a, a dock in the box, um, sort of a more productive way that you could set up these little um, kiosks in, in um, plazas and just actually respond to people's needs in a very immediate way rather than um, trying to, you know, organize all infrastructure. And the bottom one, this is actually happening in some places around the world, um, consume and, um, and the, the lamp pole and, and the designers suggesting that um, there's a sort of a solar panel on the top and rather than the, the lamp post just being um, something that you, you, know, you walk by, these folks have brought out their um, TV and have plugged it in and they're, all, they're watching TV together. Um, so imagine if you could draw energy from things like that. Um, so the design interventions, we came up with a couple of design interventions around this framework um, called um, Relate, Redefine, and Recharge. And Relate is about the individual relating to each other. Redefine is about communities um, kind of articulating their difference. And Recharge is about how do you use space. And so just very quickly, um, this is a space in San Francisco. And what we suggested, there's a lot of, uh, we get a lot of work like what's the future of, um, of newspapers and what's the future of media. And so this is kind of an idealized space where there could be um, little, little Twitter feeds in the bottom. Um, on the right-hand side, there's a couple of kiosks there that are sort of getting, key, getting cut off. But you can imagine taking your, your phone or um, writing something in there to encourage citizen journalism. And then when it really struck us that when, um, when Obama was inaugurated, there were all these events, public events, to watch the inauguration. And so you can imagine that instead of, you know, while people won't have newspapers anymore, let's say, they become the opposite of that. It's not an individual exercise, but it's a collective exercise of kind of watching and discussing the news. So on the left-hand side of this billboard is all local stuff of, you know, events and community voices and job matching. And then on the right-hand side, you can imagine, um, you know, global events like this. So really all a, a really robust mixture of media, but it's about not about passively consuming news, but actually kind of collectively engaging in it. Um, redefine, um, this is a shot from the Castro district um, down Market Street. Um, and we started to imagine, um, imagine if you were able to actually call attention to the unique communities that live around Market Street like this um, and, and start to celebrate the cross-section. So literally this, this this literal cross-section becomes a really interesting um, portion, a design canvas where you can actually call to attention. So that's the, the rainbow flag and the Castro. Um, and this is a, um, a Vietnamese lantern um, down on 6th Street, which is um, just next to Little Saigon. And so these become these really colorful, just amazing, easy to implement ways to, for that community to celebrate its placeness. Um, but everyone doesn't have to be the same. And then finally, um, this notion of recharging is just using these spaces. And, um, and we have a lot of pop shops being used um, in San Francisco that basically between leases, people are able to set up um, little experimental shops. And so rather than just having all of this um, boarded up space down Market Street, allowing entrepreneurs to test out their ideas. So bringing in the notion that we know works when we design cities and government pro programs. We know rapid prototyping works. So why not 
if we know that it works, why not allow our entrepreneurs in our cities to actually try out their products and art galleries and things like that? Um, so the theme of this is really that small acts have these huge, this huge impact that you don't need to take on this enormous program to actually start to make real change. And in fact, this is, you know, I think Scott brought this up. It's like this is, this is the time to think differently. Like everything we've done in the past has sort of gotten us into this situation. And so this, we finally have permission to really radically try new things. Um, there'll be, this presentation's up at that URL um, for anyone who's interested in it as well. Thank you. Thanks a lot for uh, having me. I'm Dan McGinn with Eldorado Architects. And so um, we're from, uh, I'm from Kansas City and uh, it's just really great to be here. And I want to really thank you, Good Magazine for bringing us down and uh, for all of you to allow designers to have a, a chance to kind of spout for for uh, an hour or so, so really appreciate that. Um, I'm going to give a brief presentation on the potential to design for community, to design situations and experiences that can actually result in increased urban dynamism. My talk is going to hit on a topic that came up in a question from Memphis. Uh, the question poser wondered, uh, how can we reconnect all the disconnected areas of Memphis, all of the people, ideas, and events occurring on a neighborhood scale to create a more dynamic city? We're dealing with the same exact issue here in Kansas City, or in Kansas City, and I suspect other cities represented here are, are all in the same boat. So I'll take a few minutes to talk about what we've been up to, and perhaps some of it is relevant to Memphis. I think so, and uh, other cities facing the same challenges. And I should mention that a principal. I'll be showing four principles as well. Total of eight principles to deal with. Uh, <laughs> should mention that uh, the principle that overrides everything I'll talk about is the importance of maintaining a sense of humor in a recession. <laughs> so this slide shows greater downtown Kansas City, which in turn uh, looks quite similar to a number of other cities, uh, Memphis included, except of course, uh, you see barbecue in the lower slide there, except of course our, our barbecue might be a little bit better than Memphis. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we can talk about that later. <laughs> Uh, like many cities, our downtown is a collection of separate neighborhoods separated by interstate highways, shown dashed in yellow. Uh, and of course, the interstates uh, end up affecting shadow areas far greater than their actual footprints. So um, this, this I referred in the last slide to the shadow areas uh, that are associated with interstates. It's not just the width of the interstate, it's the shadow on either side that really is a negative uh, feature. This is what Kansas City feels like to me uh, many days. Separate neighborhoods kind of choked out from each other. So I'm going to take a quick look at four ideas to break the chokehold and reconnect the community at large. Uh, as you'll see, some of the ideas are pretty conventional, some of them are uh, unconventional, and one of them um, involves orangutans. Okay, so how can you design for community? Principle number one, stitch the districts. Uh, this has to do directly with the connective tissue um, that is in between uh, the different neighborhoods of a city. That's a simple infrastructural idea my firm has been working on in Kansas City. We've worked on a, uh, with a couple of artists to improve the pedestrian experience over the interstates. So far, we've collaborated on five bridges in town. Lots more to go. The goal here is twofold, primarily to entice pedestrians to cross over and to then actively engage in, in, in an experience. Uh, secondarily, to create a pretty cool experience from below at 75 miles an hour, kind of rapid branding for the hyper-tourist. Um, those last slides were with James Woodfill. This is with the motion graphics firm in... Uh, Kansas City called MK12, and we really uh, recommend uh, working together with artists uh, on this. We have amazing respect for, for artists. I'm not sure when this is going to advance automatically or not, but okay. 
there. Principle number two, occupy the gaps. Uh, it's pretty simple as an idea, really. Uh, our city centers are missing a lot of teeth, and we need to work hard to fix the teeth that remain and replace the, replace the teeth that have fallen out. Uh, my firm's renovated a, and infilled about 30 sites in the downtown area, shown in the red dots, something we're extremely proud of. Uh, this might be the most important slide I'll show today. Uh, previous slide showed our projects as red dots. We want other firms and developers and entrepreneurs in Kansas City to step up and get gritty with us, resulting in other masses of dots of colors of their choice. Lots and lots of dots. This is key. And when all the dots get dense enough, we can uh, smile together. It's a close-up of three of our red dots. Uh, Center for Drug-Free Sport on the left. Uh, TWA corporate headquarters in the middle and five Delaware lofts on the right. None of these started off as glamorous or overly fascinating projects. Uh, none of our projects really do. The trick is uh, in, in design we have found is to manufacture the fascination on every project, um, laundromats, gas stations, or whatever. Good design creates a buzz. This is really interesting. This is kind of a false tooth in the urban dentistry conceit. A uh, program in Kansas City called the <coughs> Urban Culture Project, uh, developed by David Hughes and Kate Hackman of the Charlotte Street Foundation. The idea is, is to work with developers and artists to utilize empty storefronts to create temporary art spaces. Um, pro the program has been active for about 10 years now and has resulted in 150 professionally curated shows in six different uh, sort of abandoned storefront venues. And there very likely might be similar arts organizations in your city. Highly recommend getting involved with those. That's www.charlottestreet.org, if you can't see it on the bottom. Uh, moving right along, uh, designing community principle number three, have some fun, picking on Enrique's point earlier. Uh, the idea here is that vibrant cities have an element of surprise in them, and you can design that surprise. This is a group in New York called Improv Everywhere. Their mission is to cause scenes of chaos and joy in New York through, the, through an ongoing series of cleverly staged actions. So this guy gave out uh, 2,000 high fives in an hour. This is one of my favorites. This is a, a staged suicide jumper from a four-foot ledge. <laughs> Got to check out their, uh, their website. Uh, but he was, you can see the concerned friend on the right uh, eventually talked him down. 300 people looked on, and all of these things have just affected tens of thousands of people, giving them a moment that they will never forget. Principle number four, the most uh, interesting one maybe, have some fear. This is also about designing for surprise. We were so inspired by improv uh, everywhere at El Dorado, we started proposing some urban-scale interactions of our own. Social goals are similar, but the uh, program's a little edgier. First project involves releasing about 80 orangutans into the city. <laughs> And the second involves establishing a network of urban volcanoes circling downtown, uh, currently in the conceptual design phase. Lots of spoke, uh, sparks and smoke, but only mildly dangerous, just kind of warm lava. Some real pushback on this from city, city fathers. But um, let's see how that goes. That, the idea in both of these is that you can design communities of necessity. Humans have a tendency to band together in times of strife. We group together to deal with infiltrations of invading forces, the others, and natural disasters. Uh, currently, some of the singular neighborhoods in downtown Kansas City are bickering with, with each other over all kinds of issues, funding, and we think that this will help them bond together. So to be honest, the, the volcanoes are proving to be kind of problematic. Uh, the lava is more toxic than we thought. We're having much better luck on the orangutan project. Uh, our breeding program is way ahead of schedule, and uh, slide on the right shows a, a mock occupation we staged in January. Um, might sound a little far-fetched, but we're not the first ones to have come up with this idea. Siena has its horses, Pamplona has its bulls, Memphis has its ducks. Uh, humans become highly fascinated when animals insinuate themselves into urban environments. 
could be that uh, there's something instinctual there, or, or maybe we're just bored. I'm not sure. <laughs> so we know it's not going to be easy. We, we predict that it will be met with some resistance, but that's really the point. Uh, humans simultaneously desire and dread ape invasions. Uh, <laughs> it seems we have a complex relationship with our cousins. Um, a lot of movies about the point, along with about 15% of Edgar Allan Poe's stories have to do with ape invasions. <laughs> We're relatively confident and it will end well, though. Uh, <laughs> we predict our communities will come together, uh, deal with the orangutans. Uh, eventually, they'll be welcomed into our own communities. And there's even the possibility for some uh, interspecies uh, community building. We're really excited about that. So, summary. When Good Magazine asked me to respond to the questions posed by the readers, I saw a consistent theme. How can you design and promote How can you design to promote community? So I posed this question to my partners at El Dorado, and the answer became pretty clear, pretty quick. Uh, for Kansas City, Memphis, or just about anywhere else, stitch the districts, occupy the gaps, have some fun, and then release the orangutans. <laughs> <laughs>
debate represents something much more fundamental than a deep recession? What if it is telling us that the whole growth model we created over the last 50 years is simply unsustainable economically and ecologically? And that 2008 was when we hit the wall, when Mother Nature and the market both said no more. And in my mind, I was thinking, my God, this sounds like an urban Ponzi scheme. You know, and, and, and then I compared that to, to another uh, piece that I wanted to share with you. I was recently uh, um, in a conference in the East Coast, and Jim Konstler, the author of the book uh, Geography of Nowhere, uh, got up to the podium, and, and in a kind of, of, uh, he was kind of upset, and he said, I cannot believe it. You know, I've been traveling across the country, and it seems everybody everybody's clamoring for solutions. He says, at the same time, I'm beginning to get the feeling that all the solutions we want is just to maintain a status quo. He pointed at a very specific issue, and this, again, uh, when we're talking about solutions, what are we talking about? Is that solutions? Can I have this next slide, please? Uh, for me, it's an important issue because, as you, you, you must understand, that not only I'm, I, I would like to represent the border territory, but California, Southern California is a mother, is a capital of selfish urbanization, of oil-hungry infrastructure. Probably this is an emblematic figure of that. The next one, please. He was talking about how solutions uh, are just a way to maintain a way of living, a wasteful you know, status quo, he said. And that really drove home a very important idea. He said, we must think not of uh, uh, solutions, but of uh, creative uh, responses to produce different arrangements, he said, in the way we live. Uh, he was also talking about how discouraged he was about the fact that everybody wanted to have a hybrid car, when in reality the problem was about the car itself, I mean, about creating different alternatives and so on. So what uh, I wanted to, maybe I am realizing that I shouldn't take too much time because it is Enrique who needs to share his point of view, uh, but I wanted to elucidate and be provocative about a couple of points. We all agree that global warming is really uh, seen particularly through the lens of environmental crisis. I think it's very important uh, to put it through the lens of a cultural crisis primarily, and this is what Jim Consler was getting at. That this is how I interpret it. It's a cultural crisis in the need for all of our institutions to re-engage the public differently. It produces these new arrangements. That, of course, means what we keep talking at nauseum recently, we have an opportunity to rethink the institutions. But what does that mean? We have an opportunity to produce different ways of doing and thinking and ultimately of producing different types of leadership, new politics, new economics. I'm trying to get closer to Bogota in a moment. Uh, so in that sense, I feel, and this is the reason I'm excited to be next to, uh, next to Enrique, uh, because so far in the last years, we've been just looking, our gaze has been concentrated in the Dubais of the world, in the Shanghais of the world, in the places of mega economic power, thinking that only economic value can solve problems. I think finally, as some of the designers earlier showed, we might be looking at places of scarcity or other arrangements having to do with micro scales and, and the kind of fine tuning of relationships between communities and institutions. So it is the, the, the intelligence of social capital, uh, uh, what I'm talking about, uh, that seems to be compelling places of scarcity where we can harvest ideas to rethink the way we, are, we have been doing things. 
the way we, we've been growing. I don't have any problems with growth, but I think that because this is what you were getting at, we need to talk about density as complexity and so on. But I think we have to question the way we've been growing. So this takes me again to Latin America, because living in San Diego, I've been telling all my friends, finally, we are, it's going to be clear that the third world will teach the first in terms of uh, social sustainability and other economic models and other ways of calibrating the relationship of infrastructure to communities. I've been getting very worried that even the most progressive government, as the one of the Obama administration, is talking about infrastructure in such, such reductive ways, fixing roads, uh, freeway, uh, retrofitting, etc. I would like to speak, of course, of the relationship of transportation infrastructure to public space, to mobility in more intelligent ways to calibrate that relationship again. Housing, we keep talking about housing as just a bunch of units spread on the, on the landscape. We need to rethink how housing relates to social service, to public space, to other types of uh, programming or land use considerations. Imagine density continues to be perpetuated across the board as an amount of units per acre. I think that it's time to understand that in neighborhoods, density can be measured as an amount of socioeconomic exchanges per acre. That produces a very different idea of city. And it worries me also that the, the, the earlier this morning in the interview, uh, what is his name um, from the White House, he said, we need to create jobs to buy cars. Uh, for me, it's a, a fundamental uh, also a problem is that we need to recalibrate, again, what do we mean as we move from being just consumers to citizens, hopefully, once more. And I think that that is part of what I wanted to open up now in terms of Enrique and his experience. Because as we begin to talk about innovation, as we begin to talk about relying on the kind of grassroots efforts at times, but primarily very different ideas about what infrastructure means and this triangulation of public space, mobility, and infrastructure, and, of course, leadership. So here's a person who, of course, I don't know how many of you in the audience know, uh, revolutionized this uh, aspect by proposing a very different idea of uh, mobility and transportation infrastructure in his city of Bogota as mayor. So sorry for the long introduction. I wanted to locate ourselves uh, a bit in the context of the border. Uh, finally, because the reconfiguration in Latin America as mayors, presidents from the top down are really looking at social networks, at informal economies, at a very forceful and aggressive idea of uh, innovation. Uh, it has created, in my mind, a kind of shape that has reconfigured Latin America as the only place where very progressive ideas, in this case, uh, across the world, are really being produced from the top down. And that shape ends 20 minutes away here as San Diego and Tijuana really produce this very interesting relationship between places of mega wealth and sectors of scarcity of poverty. So, Enrique, would you mind then maybe just beginning to talk about this uh, through the lens of your experience in Bogota? Thank you, Terry. Hello, is the microphone working well? Uh, and thank you. I'm very thankful for being invited here to see other cities, to be with Carl. It's a great honor to be with Mayor Daly, whom I have admired for a long time. Uh, and I will say, as I, we have a, as I have a presentation tomorrow with him, I will explain tomorrow why is it that I admire him. It's not just a formalism. Uh, and uh, I can agree that uh, 
uh, with treatment that says that we we have we will hit the wall and the the the, the, the people will not uh, the societies will not get richer. But uh, I think regardless of whether we will have more or less growth, uh, clearly there is not a a clear a beyond a certain minimum. There is not a correlation between wealth and happiness, which is what really matters. Uh, to me, anyway, it's much more. I mean, it's much more fun uh, than to have these uh, CEOs' pleasures of being in a forty-five million dollar private jet or a forty million dollar yacht. It's much, much more fun to ride a bicycle than to be in these uh, uh, toys that are more about status than about fun uh, in a place where it's safe. Uh, but uh, so we really have to rethink our cities because of very fundamental problems. Today we, need, we tell any three-year-old child in the world, watch out, a car. And the child jumps in terror, and with a good reason, because there are more than 200,000 children who are killed by cars every year in the world. So they, I think in 200 years, uh, okay, thank you. Today, today we, uh, we think of uh, London of 1800 as a horrible place to live. It was uh, overcrowded, it was polluted, uh, yet at that time London was the most admired and imitated city in the world. I think in 200 years uh, we will say how could people live in that, ho in those how could people live in those horrible cities of the year 2010, where children grew in terror of getting killed? But the most amazing thing is not that children get growing in, in fear of getting killed, but that we think is normal, that that's what we have achieved. Yet we have had cities for 5,000 years. And for 5,000 years, uh, all streets were for people only. Even if we look at pictures of New York or uh, Paris in the year of 9,010, everybody's walking in the streets. Uh, so this is a new city that we made in the 20th century, a horrible living environment which was more friendlier to cars than to people. Even all around here in this uh, beautiful environment, it's very narrow sidewalks, very wide streets for very fast cars. It's not a very pleasant place to be despite these fancy gardens. It's very boring to walk because there is no places to go to a shop nearby. You don't find people in the streets. Uh, so uh, what the, I think the issue is do we have really clear what we want? Do we have a shared vision? I mean, if we ask people in the street, anybody in the street will tell us what their ideal home is. They will tell us exactly what it is, in which neighborhood, what the size, whether you have a balcony, what color, whether you have a rug, or what color the walls will be painted. But actually, we spend more time, at least awake, out of our homes and inside our homes. And we have no idea how, uh, and most people would not know how, if we ask them, what your ideal city is, people would not know what the width of sidewalks, what the transportation system, what the height of buildings, how would we mix shops and transportation, uh, and shops and, and residential, I'm, I'm sorry. So uh, I think we, we have to be daring. I mean, in terms of creativity, it's very interesting that the, uh, these uh, people in the creative side, these uh, creators, these designers were invited because I think we have to do some very radical changes. For example, in Bogota, let me tell you what we did some, in some experiments. We did, uh, for example, a 
like a kilometer, like about 18 mile long pedestrian and bicycle street only. Through some very dense areas, not some sort of, a, or not next to a river or anything, just. But I would say, how would you add, if any of you, even in any, doesn't matter if you live in a suburb or in a city, imagine how you would improve your quality of life to have, to, within a few blocks of your home, to enter a 50 mile long pedestrian and bicycle street only, where you would not hear noise, where you could go carry a baby stroller where your children would not be afraid of uh, being let off your parents' hands. It's a different concept, very cheap, very low. I mean, most of the things that we have to do about cities have to do with very difficult political decisions. It's not so much with having more, more money, but with having difficult political decisions. Uh, I like to see a, uh, to remind of an image. When we see planet Earth from space, it looks like this beautiful blue, self-sufficient spaceship, which floats in space without known destination. And then we all feel so close to each other, all humans. We share this destiny. Yet once we come down here, we see it's not so, we are not so close. Uh, uh, first, we, especially if you have a Colombian passport, it's very difficult to go to most countries in the world. You have to get a visa. And it's difficult. And, and even inside your country, most land is private. Almost the whole country is private. And if you go into this private land, you can get killed. It's not a minor danger. And so you go to your city, and then the city is really private space. If you go into private spaces, you get killed. And then if you go into this, this, the, the street space, you also get killed by the cars there. So once you, all this to emphasize that out of the whole planet, of the whole planet, the only microscopic piece of the planet that is open to us all is public pedestrian space in our cities. So I like to really try to emphasize that really the most important part of cities where we create equality, where we create equity, where we feel well, where we feel safe, what makes really a difference in cities. There are many other aspects as well, perhaps, but the most crucial one is public pedestrian space. Sidewalks, bicycle ways, parks. How do we do that? Do we dare do some radical things that maybe take away all this parking along street in some places and make a, take half the street to make just a, a white pedestrian street only? Why don't we dare think really different? Uh, and I think also we have to come to a point that there is a conflict between a city that is very friendly to cars and a city that is very friendly to people, regardless whether these hybrids or not. They kill just as easily. Uh, so uh, there is a conflict. Uh, there is a conflict. How the most valuable resource that a city has, I mean, the, uh, that we have as citizens, more valuable than oil or than gold, is this space between buildings, road space. And how do we want to distribute this between pedestrians, bicycles, public transport, and cars? Let's not go look to transit engineers for them to give us a solution. There is no such a thing as a technical solution to how much space do we, do we have to give to cars. This is a political decision. If there was less space for cars in New York or in London, there would be less cars. If there is more space for cars, there will be more cars. It's very clear today that to have bigger roads do not solve any mobility issues, because actually what creates traffic jams is not the number of cars, but the length of trips and the number of trips. So 
Uh, this is the issue that I think we have to think about. How do we want to distribute, how do we want to distribute this? Uh, and uh, I'd like to end this uh, simply saying that uh, for many reasons, which is not the case now, clearly we all want density today. And I will appeal to the traditional definition of density. <laughs> uh, because many of the needs that we have as humans in a good city is a city that we, where we can walk. And walk does not just mean to have wide sidewalks. It means destinations. So we need to have shops where to walk to. If you have to, if you have to take a car to go buy milk or bread, the city is not well designed. It's not a good human environment. I mean, you should be able to walk. And then if many people walk, so you will see people. Another need that we have, we need to see people. If, when shopping malls replace public space as a meeting place for people, it's a symptom that a city is sick. Because clearly, uh, in shopping malls, first of all, we have shopping malls that are upscale, low scale, so the poor people feel uncomfortable in the upscale shopping mall. If you go as tourists to a city that you don't know, what is it that you ask the concierge? Where can you go walk and see people? And if the concierge tells you to go to the mall, you never go back to the city or never advise anybody to go because, I mean, if they blindfold you and they put you inside a mall, you don't even know where you are. You know if you are in, in uh, Denver or in Miami or in Bangkok or in Bogota because all the malls are the same. They are kept at the same temperature. With the globalization, you have the same shops inside the mall. Uh, so you don't see the trees, you don't see the mountains, you don't see the ocean, you don't see the birds, you don't see the architecture. So I will, this is again to emphasize how what we have to, when we are trying to improve our cities, I think how do we improve the public pedestrian space of our cities? How can we do it? And I think this is a great challenge. This is before, because we just have 45 minutes and the time will escape and already escape. But I wanted to get to more specific issues and I wanted to ask you if I have the opportunity to have you here. Because precisely, as I was saying earlier, this is a moment when an administration like Obama administration and the shifts that are occurring in our very country can, in fact, refer to other cultures, refer to other, the best practices that have emerged in other environments, such as in Colombia. It's amazing the amount of projects that have been incredibly successful uh, in Latin America, from Curitiba uh, to uh, Medellin to, to Bogota uh, to, to Sao Paulo in Brazil, you know, very progressive governments that are reorienting a way of, again, doing things. Coming from Guatemala, and I never thought that I was going to be missing a benevolent dictator, you know, that, that would really say, you know, this is good, let's do it, you know, such as a Latin American mayor of Chicago. Uh, 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 I, I was thinking that there is something about the actual procedures in producing news. This, you don't mean this. that there is a benevolent dictator as mayor of Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, what I'm trying to get at is that behind these amazing success stories, like the one in Bogota, there is a process. There is a political and economic process that has been designed, talking about design and the power of design, by leaders like you. Uh, uh, there is, a, there, there is a, an issue that we are facing right now. I couldn't believe when they were saying that Obama was the spokesman of uh, social, uh, European-style socialism. It's like as medieval as anything that the Taliban could say. Uh, the point is that we are facing the fact that either, either we are a country of the eye 
or a country of the we. And I think that there's issues about taxation, there's issues about urban pedagogy, as uh, I understand in many projects in, in Colombia, paved the way for many of the projects that were successful, this elevating of a kind of civic consciousness about the meaning of these things. There is also the issue of hybridity, the, the wonderful projects that Sergio Fajardo has been working in Medellin, inventing uh, hybrids between public space and libraries and knowledge. A lot of ideas that we could be uh, harvesting or importing into our context. So quickly, it's just, would you mind just talking about this issue of how, uh, again, you were able to push this idea, what is, what is really the, the core and the more essential part of, of, of the project in Bogota? Well, I would say that the, 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 I still believe uh, that equality is important. I mean, it did not die with communism. Not income equality, but there has quality of life equality. Or in every constitution, the first article says that all citizens are equal before the law. A consequence of that, which is explicit in some constitutions, implicit in all others, is that public good prevails over private interests. This is, for example, why uh, Mayor Daly was able to take over a very exclusive uh, private airport in order to turn it to public space, because he's constructing democracy, he's constructing equality. But, uh, and I think this is the guiding principle, and it's amazing that I, I try to do all kinds of things to create equality, and then I am invited to many places as an, a speaker on environment and environmental policies. But actually, I was not really trying to do environmental policies. I was trying to create social justice. But amazingly, when you try to do one thing, they are the same policies. And when we try to promote public transport, when we try to promote public spaces, when we try to promote bicycle use, we are creating equality, but we also creating more sustainable. So it's fascinating that the two objectives are coincidental. Uh, and uh, I'd like to make something reference in particular to the, the United States. Clearly, the, the most important challenge, in, urban challenge in the United States uh, has been related is how to create higher density, because higher density is necessary for more environmental uh, cities in order to have a, the only way to have public transport work is to have higher density, because good public transport is one that has low cost, and high frequency. If you have a spread out city, you cannot have low cost and high frequency. So if you have a compact city, you can have bicycles, you can have public transport, you can have taxis. I mean, a taxi in Manhattan will cost you maybe $10 from one extreme to the other, maybe $15. Here in San Diego, from one extreme to the other, it will cost you $150 or something like this. So, uh, so all, all things work well. But we have to teach people what, why do people like to go to the suburbs? This is not because they are dumb or something like that. What is it that suburbs provide? Mayor Daly said that it was good education. I think that's one of the things that you have to provide. But I don't think that's all because 20%, only 20% of homes in the United States have uh, school-aged children. So still the other, the other 80%. What are the other 80% people who, are, who do not have school-aged children finding suburbs? I think basically is, for example, Pedestrian spaces, places to be able to ride a bicycle, contact with nature. So I think you can provide many of these things in a city, many of these things that people are seeking in the suburbs in more dense environments. The great schools, the fully protected pedestrian and bicycle way so that people can ride a bicycle safe without having to go out in a far out suburb. Green things. And we have to find out what are these, these, these things. 
Uh, and we have to teach people that density does not mean 30-story high buildings. Actually, most successful environments where you have high density, from Boston, uh, downtown, or the village in New York, or Broma in Stockholm, or Paris, or, or Zurich, or uh, Florence, is basically four, five, six-story high buildings. But people, when we talk density, everybody understands something different in their head. The word density scares people because each person has a different idea of density in their mind. And we, but still we have to make some painful decisions with some. We have to demolish some of these nice suburban houses and put five or six story high buildings there if we want higher density. This is extremely important for the environment, for public transport. Uh, and we did, uh, so in Bogota, we, for example, we started to build specifically protected bicycle ways. We built more than 350 kilometers of protected bicycle ways. And we were able to increase from practically zero to 5% the people using bicycles every day. This is about 350,000 people riding bicycles every day. I would say a bicycle way is extremely important because it protects citizens, but it's also a very powerful symbol that shows that a citizen on a $30 bicycle is equally important to one on a $30,000 car. So it's again a means to create equality, to create equity. Here it was mentioned this morning that uh, people, the low-income people who were downtown or, or who were in different places could not go to their jobs very far because there was no public transport, no low cost. So even in the United States, for example, there are people who are, for anybody who are less, less than $50,000 a year, to have a car is a huge investment. And the space to keep the car, and the insurance and everything. So if they are able to avoid having a car, so this can increase very significantly the quality of life. So I think when we are talking about bicycles, walking, pedestrian, even though it's the United States, even here, this has a meaning not only in terms of quality of life, but also in terms of equity. But I think, why do the Dutch use more bicycles than the US? It's not because, only because uh, uh, they are, it's not that they are different in their genes. It's also because they create, they took the political decision to create the infrastructure and promote bicycles. And for San Diego, for example, maybe the best weather in the world, in the place where we are, for bicycling. No rain, not too cold, not too hot. And now we have some new machines. I think we'll change cities towards the future. I think they are electric bicycles. Electric bicycles, you plug them at night, and then it will give you 50 miles the next day. It does, it's not an electric motorcycle, you have to pedal. So even in a city with hills such as San Diego, you can easily use an electric, as long as you have a safe infrastructure for bicycles, but then it's a chicken and an egg quandary. You have to start, and you have to, somebody has to take the political risks to take away some, some uh, parking space perhaps, and to make these type of things, at least in our city, it was crucial in changing people's attitudes towards, for example, riding bicycles. So I think that, uh, unfortunately, there is so much more that we could be talking about in this context, again, in the relationship of, I think I would say, in terms of my own interest, the United States and Latin America. I think that it would have been great, in fact, to share with many of you who are coming from out of town, really what is the nature of this territory, this border territory. This is not just San Diego, again, as I was saying. There is Tijuana next door. And I think that there is no other place uh, in the world, I could say, that can serve as an urban laboratory to compress 
many of the issues that have been of, of essential, very essential in our debate, in our conversation. You can imagine here in 60 linear miles San Diego, Tijuana, across the border, the politics of surveillance, cheap labor, immigration, density, sprawl, informal, formal dynamics. And not only that, but there is no other place in the world where you would find some of the wealthiest real estate as the one found just around La Jolla or in Rancho Santa Fe, barely 30 minutes away from some of the poorest settlements in Latin America. So I think this dramatic proximity of wealth and poverty is at, at, at the center of our discussion. And I think that ultimately, as, when, as we look at the best practices in Latin America, I think that we, could, we have to continue researching really what made them possible. I think that if I was to dissect many of these successful projects, it's leaders like Enrique Peñalosa who have mediated between top and down between large infrastructural idea of, of transportation, but also the kind of social networks or dynamics at, on the ground, I think. This act of negotiation between the large and the small is really once more at the stake in our conversation. So I just wanted to end by that, that ultimately probably there is one issue in the context of the public realm is redefining it in some ways, and in so doing also redefine a sense of ownership. I think that what has become clear in our context is that in the next years we have to fundamentally re redefine what private you know, property is in relationship uh, to public infrastructure and public space. So uh, too many ideas to discuss in 45 minutes, but nevertheless for me it's an amazing treat to be next to you, Enrique, and uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.